to invite you to open a Bible to the last chapter of Colossians. It's page 985 in these Bibles in the pews. So we come to the final sermon in a series that began back in the fall going through the book of Colossians. Now I realize it's Palm Sunday, but this is uh, very much connected. Palm Sunday is the day we look back to as the day the scriptures tell us Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the shouts by the multitudes of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds were were massive and then by Friday of that week uh, he would be crucified. Uh, Three days later he would be resurrected from the dead. Over a period of 40 days he made appearances to hundreds of people. Then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit fell on his disciples. They were changed from fearful, doubting followers to bold, courageous witnesses of the gospel of Jesus. And now, years later, when this is written by the Apostle Paul while he's in jail in Rome, there are churches that have been planted all around the Mediterranean area. People had been changed by the gospel as the early disciples went out telling them. They told them what we call the bad news, good news, that we were all created in God's image and had a perfect life with God. But due to our ancient four parents, Adam and Eve, they broke God's law, and as a result of that, they not only died spiritually, but we start off where we they ended up. We are born into this world spiritually dead. We cannot do anything of our own era efforts and our own merits to make ourselves alive spiritually. So God the Father sends his son, the sacrificial lamb, who lives a perfect life. He never sinned. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my father. And then he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified, dying as a substitute for the sins of others, the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And so after his resurrection, he appeared not only to his closest disciples, but I said to several hundred other people as well. The last command he gave to his disciples was to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, of all people groups, of all ethne. And that is what has been happening when this this is written. Uh, When we receive Christ, when we put our faith in him, we become new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And so we experience newness. We could, those of us that have come to know Christ could come up here today and tell specifically and tangibly how God has transformed our lives, not into perfection, not into superstars, but he's transformed us, uh, areas of our lives that were in such disobedience to him. And so this passage now, is the close of the letter and the way the style of that day, like when the Apostle Paul wrote this, unlike the way we do it now, we typically start off a letter with greetings. They would close a letter with greetings, and in this greeting he becomes very specific, very particular, and he mentions ten people. Several of these names are going to be brand new to you. Uh, you, You may have never heard of them, Others, you may say, yeah, I've heard that name, but I don't know a whole lot about that person. 
So what I'd like to do this morning in the time we have is just go through these ten names and tell you who they were and how some of the lessons from their lives apply to us today. And my main desire with this is because of the fact the culture we live in is a celebrity-drenched culture. We worship celebrities. Uh, We worship people who are famous because they're famous. Not that they've ever done anything that was worthwhile or heroic or helped others. And even in the church, that spills over to where you have uh, preachers and Bible teachers and musicians who are seen as superstars. I was speaking just within the past few weeks with a pastor friend of mine, and he was telling me of a friend of his that, that used to travel with, uh, with a pastor who had written several books and uh, was very popular with, with a certain segment of our culture. And when he would travel with him to these places, he said, I couldn't believe it. He said he really was like a rock star. People would line up and they'd want him to autograph their personal copies of his books and he was just seen as a celebrity and we'd get on the plane to go back to the home church and he said the guy would sink into depression and say oh I hate going home because he was a nobody there he was just average he was normal aren't we all just normal I read a magazine in a magazine some years ago of a it was kind of letters you could write in it was a, a magazine on the Christian music industry and it was a trade magazine but in the back they would have answers to to questions and a person had written in to a very well-known Christian musician a musician who'd been around for decades and was highly thought of character wise and everything and this person was a, a teenager and had written and said I I want to have a music ministry on a large platform with recordings and all that and what is your advice to me? And I was so reassured when the person wrote back and said, develop your skills and gifts to the best of your ability and be faithful to minister where you are. And if God wants to increase the breadth of your ministry, fine, but never pursue that. So there's an old saying that if we're responsible for the depth of our ministry, then God will take responsibility for the breadth of it. And what we have here are ten people who are normal people just like you and me. And yet they've been changed by the gospel just like you and me. So I'll spend a little bit of time on them, some longer than others, so don't be alarmed. The first guy I'm going to spend a lot of time on, and if you do the math, you're going to think we're going to be here till 2 p.m., because, but I'm not. I'll just, some of them I'll just barely mention. But uh, beginning there, uh, did I read the passage? <laughs> Verse 7, as we, as we finish Colossians. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. You remember Paul's in Rome, he's in jail when he writes this. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, 
These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Father, may we learn and may we feed on your word now, nourish our hungry souls. You say that we do not live by bread alone. In Jesus' name, amen. The first person mentioned here is Tychicus. I realize you can pronounce these names a variety of ways, but I'm using the proper Alabama pronunciation. <laughs> you remember Paul was a missionary, and he traveled around the Mediterranean areas to cities all around there, and he made three missionary journeys, and he preached about Christ. He evangelized. And on his third journey... In his third journey in the large metropolitan city of Ephesus, he meets this man, Tychicus. He was probably, Tychicus had probably converted under Paul's preaching in Ephesus. And so when Paul leaves there, he has a very emotional farewell to the Ephesian elders. He's going to Jerusalem and he doesn't know whether he'll be killed there, whether he'll be imprisoned there. Tychicus and six other men go with him. So here's this band of eight. Paul, Tychicus, and, and six others. And Paul is arrested. And we know that Tychicus and Luke and the others stayed with him. They were not imprisoned with him at that time, but they stayed there with him as his, as his support group, you might say. And so as he appeared before kings and governors and his voyages and his shipwreck on when he had appealed his case to, to Rome when he's shipwrecked and while he awaited trial in Rome, he's with him. Tychicus is there. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul describes some of the hardships he had gone through. I'll just read a brief part. He says, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And as Paul went through that, it's easy for us to imagine he was by himself. He wasn't. Guys like Tychicus were with him going through the same experiences in those difficult times. Here's the point I want you to know about this man. He served God by serving Paul. He was a behind-the-scenes worker, and Paul trusted him because of his faithfulness. And he is the one that Paul entrusted to carry this letter to the Colossians back to that city. And I'll tell you what that involved in just a moment. So in verse 7, when he says that this guy will tell you about my activities, he is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. So he is to go back and he's to take these letters, one to this group of people, the Colossians, 
He's to take a letter to the individual Philemon. He's to take the letter to the church in Ephesus. And he took one, perhaps, to the city of Laodicea. That was about 10 miles from Colossae. And he's to tell the churches in Asia about Paul's situation, that he's imprisoned in Rome and what's going on with him. So he performed these hum humble functions in support of Paul's life and ministry. He left no writings. We have, we have nothing that, that he wrote. There are no memorials that I'm aware of to this man. He, uh, there are no churches named after him. You hear of St. James Church or, or St. John's Church or, or, or things like Paul. Nothing named after this fellow. Um, but call, Paul calls him a beloved brother and a faithful minister. Now there's an important lesson. We can serve Christ by serving others. Uh, often that's how we serve Christ, by serving others. And it's the little things, the unnoticed things, it's the details that take place behind the scenes, away from public life, that make the difference. And that was where Tychicus served. A few weeks ago, earlier in Colossians, I mentioned the Reformed view of calling. And that means that you can serve Christ in the most menial areas in life, but it's still important. And that there's greatness in the smallest things done for Christ. The day perhaps some of you heard the gospel here or in another church and you came to faith in Christ, who kept the nursery that day? Who printed the bulletin? Who opened the doors and turned on the lights and the air conditioner or the heater? Or who, who handed out the orders of service? Who arranged the chairs at the youth ministry meeting where you were greatly impacted or that trip you went on? That short-term trip, who purchased the airline tickets? When you went on a youth trip and were greatly impacted for Christ, maybe you even came to faith in Christ, who drove the bus? See, that was the Tychicus. He would have driven the bus. So it's the seemingly small, unromantic things, unglorious things that we do for Christ that are critical for God's work. You know what Tychicus had to do to deliver this letter? Here's what he had to do. If you're looking at a map, and here's Italy, he had to go from Rome with the letter. He had to cross that part of Italy, probably walking. Then he had to cross the Adriatic Sea. Then he had to cross, walk, and go across Greece. Then he had to get across the Aegean Sea. Then he came to the area they called Asia Minor, and he had to travel 100 miles to get to Colossae. And because of his faithfulness, we have this. We have this today. So some of you, I would assume, need to hear that because you serve in areas behind the scenes and no one knows about it or very few people know about it and you never get public recognition for it. But the one who notices is the only one who matters and he sees that. And you can be a faithful minister and nobody knows your name and that's how it was with this guy. Now, now you're concerned. Chip, we've got a few minutes left and and I've done the math, and there are nine more to go. No, I'm going to go quicker with most of them. Verse 9 mentions Onesimus. Onesimus, you may know that name. He was, he was a slave. He was a runaway slave owned by a man named Philemon. Now, here's the tricky part. Philemon was a leader in the church in Colossae. And Onesimus had been a slave in that man's household. And by the way, if you want to... I did a whole sermon about slavery at this time in history, and that was a, 
That was back at the first part of chapter 4. You can listen to that if you want to. I'm not going to deal with that now. But he, he, he had been a slave in Onesimus' household. He steals some money, and he ran away to Rome. He fled to Rome. In Rome, he meets Paul. And he's converted to the Christian faith. He comes to faith in Jesus. And so now he's a growing Christian. And he is returning. He's going to go back to Colossae. And he's going to go back to his master, Philemon. And now, I mentioned it's tricky because Philemon was a leader in that church where Onesimus will now be involved. And he has repented. And Paul writes an entire another letter. The letter of Philemon is further into the New Testament. It's very brief. He writes that letter to Philemon urging him to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother, as a Christian brother. And Paul here describes Onesimus as a faithful and dear brother. He was a man in that day because of being a slave. He had no possessions. He had no legal rights. He had no inheritance under Roman law. And to the vast majority of people, he would have had no regard in their eyes. And yet Paul refers to him as a faithful and dear brother. When a person comes to Christ, their past, their status is no longer an issue. I don't mean that there aren't implications and scars and so forth, but this man had been transformed. He'd been changed. He's still a slave, but he's a believer. And he tells the Colossians that the man who had left their city and will be returning is, quote, one of you. He is one of you. He was to be treated as a member of the church. If you think that you are too far gone to follow Christ, you're not. You are never too far gone to follow Christ. Aristarchus, third name, verse 10. He's a Thessalonian who traveled with Paul on several occasions. He was imprisoned with Paul. I mentioned some of the others, like Luke, stayed with Paul. This guy was actually thrown in prison with Paul. He was fearless in proclaiming the gospel. One of the high points in my mind in the book of Acts is when the gospel goes to the ancient city of Ephesus, this metropolitan area, and their patron goddess was named Diana or Artemis. And one of the wonders of the ancient world and architecture was the temple to Diana. The whole economy was built around, you might say, the tourist trade related to the worship of Diana. And Paul goes there and preaches the gospel. It's one of the clearest pictures of where the gospel goes in and literally turns the place upside down. And there's a riot that goes on for hours of people yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it, had it not been God's providence, Paul and the guys with him easily could have been killed by the mob. But in Acts chapter 19, this breaks out and it says these words uh, when these Ephesians were listening to Paul preach. It said, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the same guy, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. How would you like to be known in history for only one thing, loving Jesus so much that you were in prison for following him? That's what Aristarchus is known for. That's what Aristarchus is known for. And these guys together, Tychicus and Aristarchus and Paul, they were like his support group. 
they, they encouraged him on. I mentioned at the first service, when you think about peer pressure and the importance of, of supportive fellowship that we all need at any age. And for youngsters that think peer pressure stops when you get out of high school, and it isn't so. It's pretty intense there. There's just more room to move around, but it's, it's there all through life in a variety of forms. But I remember hearing about, years ago, a psychological study that had been done, a secular study in the whole area of peer pressure. And I don't remember all the details, but I do remember the conclusion. There were like 10 subjects, 10 people that they gathered into a group. And these 10 people were to say the color of a ball on a table. Now the ball was purple by my recollection, but nine of the ten had been told in advance to say it was yellow. So only one out of the ten had not been informed. In other words, this one guy was being set up. So they put the ball out there, and they've got him as the tenth person. And so they go to number one, and they say, what color is that ball? It's obviously purple, and the person says, well, it's yellow. And, you know, number ten, like, number two, yellow. Number three, yellow. Number four, all nine say the wrong color, and they get to number ten, and they ask him what color is the ball. What do you think he said? Yellow. But they found if only one person, if only one person gave the right answer, then in every case that last person would get the right answer. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to serve Christ on your own. You and I need supportive fellowship. Paul needed it. It's tempting when we read the stories about Paul to visualize, to envision or to visualize that he was by himself. He wasn't. He almost always had a small group of men around him. And I'm sure and he mentions later, as we'll see, that they were there to comfort him. Let's move on. Then he mentions Mark. Sometimes he's called John. His Latin name was Mark. His Hebrew name was John, so we call him John Mark. Mark was a writer of the Gospel of Mark. <coughs> Peter was his primary source. If you read the Gospel of Mark, most of the accounts are given from Peter's point of view. But he was a companion of Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. When the church uh, in Jerusalem picked Barnabas and Paul and said, let's send them out, Mark was Barnabas' cousin, and so they said, let's bring John Mark, who was younger, let's bring him with us. Something happened on that first journey. We don't know what it was, but it resulted in Mark deserting them. He left. It tells us in Acts 13 that the going got tough, and, and he returned to Jerusalem. He went back. Once again, we don't know why. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was discouraged. Maybe he felt something was more important back home. Maybe he was fearful. Anyway, though we don't know those specifics, we do know that his desertion caused a rift between Paul and Barnabas because on the second missionary journey, as Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go back out, plant more churches, encourage the previous churches, Barnabas says, let's take Paul, I mean, let's take Mark. And Paul says, uh-uh. That's in Acts 15. It says in Acts 15, 39, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. 
Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. So whatever the issue was, Paul had lost confidence in John Mark. Fortunately, the story doesn't end back in Acts chapter 15. This is now 12 years later. And Mark is with Paul. And as he writes to the Colossians, he mentions Mark and that he had been restored to usefulness. And now he is with him in Rome and he's ministering to him while he is in prison. In fact, in the letter that also Tychicus was carrying, you try and say all these names and keep them straight. You try it. <laughs> and when he write, he's carrying one to Philemon. In the book of Philemon, he calls Mark his fellow worker. And later, at the end of the sunset of Paul's life, as he's writing to Timothy, his young pastor friend at Ephesus, he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful. And so Mark and Onesimus stand as evidence that fellowship takes place in an environment of forgiveness and restoration. See, when you follow Christ, when your trust is in him, we're not only reconciled to God, now reconciliation with one another is possible. I don't mean that unbelievers can't be reconciled. It's not totally, but now we have, because you're a brother in Christ, and I'm a brother in Christ, or you're a sister in Christ, and I'm your brother in Christ, we can be reconciled, and we can work out the differences between us. I know I've said it before, but I'll just mention, because it's hard for me to stand here before you and not remember, but years ago, when, when I, uh, right before I became the pastor of the church, the search committee and I were talking, and one of the elders uh, on that committee, who's now deceased, he said, he said, I didn't know there was such a rift between you and so-and-so in our church. And I said, yeah, that happened right when I moved here. I said, it was a great misunderstanding, but we, I said, it has separated us, and the more we talk, the worse it gets. It's like when you fall in a tar baby or a tar pit or something like that. It's like where Proverbs says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The more words we tried to talk, the worse it got. And uh, he, we just were very divided, this, this individual and I, and it was only known to a few people. But I knew it because every Sunday night when I would preach, he intentionally would not come. If somebody else preached, he'd be here. So anyway, somehow or another, this elder talked to him and found out about this, and he, in his very gentle way, said, you need to get this straight before we move forward as far as you being the pastor. So I thought, I've tried before, and this has gone on for years, but I'll try again. So we set up a meeting at this man's office. And, look, I said, I realize the more we talk about this, it was a misunderstanding that had occurred years before. I said, the worse it gets, but we have got to, he agreed, we've got to put this behind us. And we did. By the time I left, I remember it was 30 minutes or an hour, and there was a mutual agreement that this was over. Bury the hatchet, whatever you want to call it. And to his dying day, and he lived of several more years, he never said anything but encouraging words to me around the church or after sermons or stuff. It was as dramatic a reconciliation. It may sound pretty, pretty tame to you, but it, it wasn't. And that was God's work. And that's what happened with John Mark. And so do not think 
Do not think that you are too far gone or that God can't use me or I missed my call back 30 years ago or I thought God wanted me, me, me to be a missionary and I ran away from it or something. And that, that's, that's to be forgotten. Serve Christ where you are. Um, Epaphras, let's, oh no, I'm sorry I skipped one. Let me keep moving. Jesus, who is called Justice, in verse 11, his is the last name mentioned in this group of three who, have, who Paul calls his fellow workers for the kingdom of God. He says that Justice, along with Aristarchus and Mark, were a comfort to him. Paul was courageous, and he was willing to endure whatever suffering comes his way, but he needed comfort. They spoke truth to his soul. They reminded him daily of God's faithfulness. They reminded him of God's goodness and the heavenly reward that lay ahead. Do you comfort other believers? Do you seek to comfort them? Do you allow others to comfort you? Sometimes we intentionally deflect that. I was with a friend a few weeks ago. I do have friends. I mentioned that. You know, I never... I try to cover their identities. Uh, It was a man. It was really a woman. It was in Atlanta. It was really in Birmingham. But no. But I was with this person, and uh, we were talking, and I've, I've known this guy 40 years. And he was telling me of a hard time he had gone through some years before, and he said, everybody abandoned me but you. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, everybody abandoned me but you. I said, I don't remember that. He said, you don't remember on a Saturday night calling me on the telephone and you had, and preaching your sermon to me? He said, I literally was praying that God would help me. And the phone rang, and it was you. And you said you had just finished your sermon preparation Saturday night. And it was on Psalm such and such. He told me what it was. I've already forgot. And you said, let me tell tell you what I've learned about this psalm. And he said, you preached your sermon on the phone to me. And when I hung up, I knew that I had a word from God. I don't remember that. And you've probably done that for others too. And others have done it for you. And you say, boy, boy, they really comforted me. And if you were to go to them and say, you helped me so much, they say, I'll take your word for it. Well, Mark and Justice did that with Paul. Verses 12 and 13 mention Epaphras. Now, he's a big player here. We mentioned his name earlier. He was the founder of the church in Colossae. He had heard Paul He had been converted under Paul's ministry. He took the gospel to the city of Colossae. He apparently had led others to Christ. He had founded the church. Now he is with Paul over in Rome. And he's probably the current pastor back at the Colossian church. And he had come to Rome to give Paul a report about the ministry there. And he told him about this deal with false teaching that we've been dealing with through the months. And... Paul says, because he's one of you, he sends greetings through him. But what does Paul note about this guy? He mentions his prayer life. He mentions, he uses the word, he agonizes. He struggles in prayer over you. He prays for you regularly. Prayer is hard work. And Paul had watched him pray. And he says specifically, here's what he prayed for. that you, In verse 12, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras cared. And Paul concluded this about him by saying, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Then in verse 14, he mentions Luke. 
you know about Luke, he wrote the Gospel of Luke, he wrote the book of Acts, he was a physician, he's Paul's personal physician, he's a close friend, he was a Gentile, non-Jew, a believer who traveled often with Paul on his missionary voyages. Like Paul, he was an educated, cultured man, as evidenced, so I'm told, by those who know the Greek language, that the quality of his language reflects a, a very good education. He joined up with Paul on the second missionary journey, and he's with him most of the remainder of Paul's life. You might say he was a prototype of a medical missionary. That's what Luke was. And he was a specialist, and he surrendered his talents to God, and he gives up what would have been a, a thriving or lucrative medical practice. He's a, and he, he becomes, what's always mentioned about Luke is his faithfulness. He's a faithful man. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to Paul. He could be counted on. He put his hand to the plow. He didn't look back. If he said he was going to do something, he did it. Then he mentions a name that we're surprised to see, aren't we? Verse 14, Demas. Remember that name? Most of us, when we hear the name Demas, if you've read Timothy, you say, oh, isn't that the guy that left Paul? He deserted him? Yep. Later, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. So at this time, when Paul writes this letter, Demas, though, is with him and apparently serving Christ. But because of his love for the world, in love with this present world, perhaps Paul could see it coming, and maybe that's why he makes no comment in the greeting. He just mentions his name, but he really doesn't say anything about him. We don't know whether Demas abandoned the entire Christian faith or whether he just abandoned the mission with Paul. Uh, we don't know whether he was apostate or whether he just said, I, I can't live this way like you, Paul. I can't live in danger every day or with, with fear of imprisonment. Uh, we don't know. Um, but whatever was at the root of it, it was love for this present world. If you think, well, what's that? That's just loving the here and now more than what's coming later. If you and I are going to be committed to Christ, especially in hard times, especially in suffering, we will have to have a love for the world to come that, that exceeds our love for this present world. Nympha. There's some debate over whether it's a masculine or feminine name, but the weight points to her rather than him. So it's a woman, I believe. And the house in Laodicea, which was 10 miles from Colossae, met in her house. The church buildings, as we know them, those, are, those were not in the early church. We have no account of actual church structures, in other words, buildings dedicated to Christian worship, until early in the 4th century, at the earliest. And then after Constantine makes Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. Then you have the building of churches. So most of the time they met, if it was a large, if it was, uh, in a small city, they might meet in one large house. If it was a large city like Rome, they would have house churches all, all around. It would be seen as one church, but uh, satellites, you know, satellite campuses, you might say, meeting in these homes. And so most, when you and I, when I hear church, I immediately think building. 
For over 300 years, the early believers never thought that way. If you said church, they thought of an assembly of believers meeting together for worship with with elders and deacons and and so forth. They thought people, uh, not building. So if we had gone to Nympha's house, no electricity, no sound system, no indoor plumbing, no padded pews, no carpet, no printed bulletins, no computers, no paraphernalia of anything that we often associate with worship services. So we, we should thank God for this woman, this woman Nympha and her place in history and many others, many others today in persecuted countries that have housed churches And the fact that her name stands alone probably indicates she was either a widow or that she was single. And in any case, it's her testimony. Lastly, just for briefly, we're out of time, Archippus. Paul exhorts this man to be faithful to the ministry that he's received. We're not told what it was. He may have been a deacon or an elder, may have been an evangelist. Those in vocational ministry, those of us in vocational ministry, or if God calls you into vocational ministry, we should seek not to be fulfilled by it, but to fulfill it. We should seek to be fu- not to be fulfilled by it, that, but to fulfill the ministries God given to us. And in the very last verse, Paul says, I write this greeting with my own hand. He typically would use a secretary to, to write, to dictate the letters, but then he picks up the quill or whatever it was he wrote with, at that time, and he writes this last verse himself with his own hand. And perhaps it was to show authenticity, to make sure it wasn't some like a forgery or a duplicate, and he puts that there, and he says, all he says, can you imagine, all you've said to him, and all he says about his own condition, remember my chains. He's not being metaphorical. There were literal chains. And we can just guess that he's asking for prayer, He's asking for intercession on his behalf. He's asking that he'd be a faithful witness and disciple even when he's in prison. Um, but I just want to close on that, on that note of going through hard times. He may have been saying, remember my chains, because these may await anyone who follows Christ. They were right on the verge of persecution really becoming very horrific uh, toward the Christians. And I want to say to you, Um, because as a pastor it's not unusual that those of us who are pastors will talk to someone and they may say you know I used to believe I used to have faith I used to believe but I lost my faith when X happened when some event happened somebody died or divorce or grief or child it could be a, a thousand different things but I lost my faith when X happened and my internal response is, good. Lose that faith. Good? Yes. Because you don't want a faith which can't th- get you through difficulties. You don't want a faith which can't carry you through imprisonment. A faith which cannot sustain you in crisis is not a good faith. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith which cannot be trusted. A faith which can be easily lost is no faith at all. And so I would say, yes, I'm sorry Jesus did not meet your expectations, just like those in Jerusalem shouting when he came in that day on the donkey. But now use the Bible and form the right expectations. Come to Jesus as he is. Come to the God who is able to do whatever he pleases with whomever he chooses, 
wherever he wishes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ that we will meet one day. Thank you for their faithfulness, in most cases behind the scenes, names not even recognizable to us. We know that's happening here among people, and we pray for those who serve, and they don't receive accolades, they don't get pats on the back or any public notoriety, and yet they're faithful. May they have reassurance from you of how vital that work is. We pray for those of us that may be like Mark or Onesimus and in broken relationships that you might help us to do as you exhort us as far as possible, be at peace with all men. But most of all, we pray we'll be trusting in Christ and him alone, not in our own efforts, not in our goodness, but in the, the work of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.